0: you will make your way to the gospel of Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. We'll read the scripture together here in just a moment. We're continuing today in our series in the gospel of Luke. Jesus came to seek and save. Today the message is you will call his name Jesus. We're going to be thinking about the announcement of the birth of Jesus to Mary and the things surrounding that and learn some wonderful truths about our Savior as we study this passage together. In the Bible, Gabriel is identified as an angel. He's identified as a messenger who stood in the presence of God. Gabriel the angel had the responsibility on several occasions to deliver very significant messages to the people of God Who were given specific responsibilities in service to God. We find Gabriel appearing in the Old Testament to the prophet Daniel after the prophet had a vision. Gabriel appeared as a man to explain the vision to Daniel and then he appeared a second time and Daniel fell on his face at the sight of the angel and the Bible says that he was sick for a few days after and then Gabriel indicated to him when he appeared to him that his prayer had been answered that God was sending a message to him from heaven. Gabriel's message also came to the priest Zacharias who would be the father of John the Baptist. The message was spoken to Zacharias while he was in the temple ministering to the Lord. The angel appeared and he had a message to him that his prayers had been heard and that Zacharias's wife who had been barren and who was old in age was in fact going to conceive and bear a son, and his name would be John. This would be John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah, the messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God was working a miracle to bring his life about in anticipation of the coming Lord Jesus. We pick up reading here today in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, and we'll go through verse 45. And here's what the Bible says. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. I'll pause here just for a moment and remind you that I'm reading from the New King James Version, at least through the narrative of the birth of Jesus. The language is so familiar and rich that I chose to do that and we'll see how far I want to go along um, as we move forward. But beginning again in verse 28, and having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you therefore also that the holy one who is to be born will be called the son of god now indeed elizabeth your relative has also conceived a son in her old age and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren for with god nothing will be impossible then mary said behold the maidservant of the lord let it be to me according to your word and the angel departed from her Now verse 39, now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. After Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, conceived, and John the Baptist, the messenger, was on the way She stayed out of sight for the first five months. In the sixth month of her pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel uh, to a young girl named Mary. And the message came to Mary in Nazareth in the region of the Galilee. Nazareth was an out-of-the-way place with ordinary circumstances. It's not mentioned at all in the Old Testament or among the rabbinical writings, The town was located on the halfway mark between the port cities of Tyre and Sidon. Mary's life would have been very ordinary outside of this tremendous event that was about to take place in her life by the power of God. She would have been an unknown person in an unknown town, basically in the middle of nowhere, living out her life as many of us do. And yet God was about to intervene and to do something that only God could do. Gabriel announced to young Mary that she was going to be the mother of the son of God. Let that sink in for just a moment, that she was going about her business in an ordinary place, in an ordinary way, with an ordinary existence, and then God breaks in with an extraordinary message. The story of the nativity is as beautiful and magnificent of a story as the world has ever known. And while we read it and we think about all the beauty and the things that surround it and what happened at the very birth of Jesus, we have to remind ourselves that it happened among real people, in a real place, in real time. God was stepping in to do what only God could do. Martin Luther wrote that he might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas's daughter who was fair and rich and clad in gold, embroidered raiment, and attended by a retinue of maids-in-waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a lowly town. R. Kent Hughes, the preacher, said if the incarnation happened today, it would be the same. The Lord would not be born in Jerusalem or Rome or Geneva or Canterbury, but on the ordinary streets of some nameless town. Mary found herself in the circumstance of being betrothed to Joseph to be married. Betrothal was an official time period that would lead up to the actual marriage. Uh, It was a binding contract of sorts that it would have been between two families. And during that time, the couple would not have lived together, nor would they have had sexual relationship. And here Gabriel tells Mary that she's found favor in the sight of God because of what God is about to do. Did you know that the greatest thing any of us could ever hear now or in eternity is that we have found favor or grace in the sight of God, that the God who created us and gave us physical life would shine down his grace on us so that we might know him and we might be called his children. Well, he showed that grace to Mary Uh, And she was going to be the mother of the Savior. The Bible never indicates that Mary was anything other than an ordinary human being whom God sovereignly chose to use in an an extraordinary way. She would conceive and bring forth a son. Mary asked a logical question about the circumstance. How can this be since I do not know a man? Gabriel told her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and would overshadow her. Now note what is about to take place. The immaterial, who is the Holy Spirit, and the material, who is Mary, are about to come together here with God performing the miracle of the incarnation. There have been many people who have refuted the virgin birth, who have come against it, who argue against it, There are people that spend a lot of time trying to disprove the fact that there could have been a virgin birth and that Jesus could have been born in this way. I'm thankful to say that in my entire life, either before I was saved or in the years since, I've never doubted the virgin birth. I've always had a confidence that this is in fact a true story. And the reason that I believe in the virgin birth is because it's in the word of God and I believe the word of God. And I have confidence that this is, in fact, what God did. And the doctrine of the virgin birth is significant for us and our theology and just having a foundation to our faith. And it's significant because it tells us that salvation came from God. God promised that a seed would come that would crush the head of the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15. That's the first mention of the gospel. That's the first mention of a deliverer. And Galatians 4 and verse 4 and 5 says, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Only God could do this. The doctrine of the virgin birth is significant because it represents the union of deity and humanity in one person. Or to say it another way, it was the way that God chose to to come to earth. That God would come 100% God and 100% man in Jesus. The doctrine of the virgin birth was important related to his deity in the sense that he did not have a human father. According to what Paul writes in the book of Romans, uh, the sin nature is passed down from generation to generation Through the Father, the earthly Father, Uh, Jesus was born without sin. He was born without a sin nature. His conception was holy. Everything about the virgin birth would be supernatural. Everything about the virgin birth would be miraculous. And so we take it on faith. And our statement of faith says, in part, regarding the Son of God, Christ is the eternal Son of God in his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. In the time that we have together today, I want to share with you how the announcement of Jesus reveals some important truths to us about Jesus. And the first truth is this, the announcement of Jesus reveals his mission, reveals his mission. Notice again in verse 31, the Bible says, you shall call his name Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. So just listen in, lean in a little bit and think about what I'm about to tell you. Did you know that every single year on earth, there are around 130 million babies that are born? 130 million babies. That averages out to about 250 babies that are born every single minute of every single day. So if we were to do the math in our time that we'll be here together in 70 minutes or so, there are going to be somewhere around 17,500 babies that will be born just in this time that we're here in this worship service together. And did you know that every one of those babies will receive a name? Every one of them will be called something. And that name that they receive will be a part of who they are. It will identify them for always. And it will be significant because names are and have always been important. They've always been a part of every culture. And the giving and the receiving of a name is something of great significance. A person who receives a name receives both an identity and a place in society. So we could say that naming is almost a symbolic act between an individual and society that recognizes the person's existence and acknowledges our responsibility toward the individual. His name shall be called Jesus. Jesus was his birth name. That's what he was to be called. Jesus was his home name. That's how his family would refer to him. Jesus would be his name on the cross when they put the inscription above him Jesus of Nazareth. That would be how they referred to him. Jesus is his gospel name because we're told to repent and believe in the name of Jesus. Jesus is his prayer name that we would pray as we've been instructed in the name of Jesus. Jesus is his heavenly name, in the message that was given to John the Revelator, he said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about these things. So he referred to himself, I, Jesus. And his name tells us about the mission that he came for. In Bible times, names carry great significance and meaning. They represented the past because they were often connected. To the family of origin. There would be some meaning of the family of origin. They would have significance in uh, the present in in terms of uh, their role or their life. And they would also have significance in the future because they represented the hopes that the parents had for the children. And while a name may not determine a destiny, isn't it interesting that names are often connected to the path that people take in life? There's often this unique connection even to how they live out their lives. And the name of Jesus was a name that was great in history. The name Jesus is a Greek form of Joshua or Yeshua um, or Yahashua, which means literally God is salvation. That's what the name means. Joshua the conqueror assisted Moses and succeeded him. He led in the great military victories in the conquering of the promised land. Joshua, the high priest, was the priest when the remnant of the Jews left Babylon and returned to the land to rebuild the temple. So this name of Jesus was significant because it tells us something about his mission. The name of Jesus came from heaven. Yes, the angel said what it was to be, but this was God who had chosen this name. It's only fitting that the Father would choose the name of the Son, and that the Son would come from heaven to us on a mission. And he often spoke of coming down from heaven. He went back into heaven. And babies who were born never existed before their conception. I'm going to make a point here. Life has always and will always begin at conception for normal human beings there's no question about that biblically there's no equivocation there's no excuse for to view, to view a child in the womb as anything other than a human being who's been created in the image of god but here was jesus who had existed from eternity past He's now making his entrance into this world. This is what the message was telling us that the name of Jesus tells us why Jesus came. He came to save people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 says, And she shall bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor for your sakes. Yet through his poverty, we might become rich. This is the mission that he came on. He came to save people from their sins. And that's our greatest need, to be saved from our sins. Somehow we treat Jesus at times as though he's just an add-on. He. He's something just to help us live our best life. He's something that's just going to give us blessings in the moment. But the reason that Jesus Christ came is because we're sinners and we stand in need of a Savior. That's why He came. In the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, sin is a horrible evil, a deadly poison, yet it is this which gives Jesus His title when He overcomes it. What a wonder it is. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness but my badness not my merit, but my misery, not my standing, but my falling, not my riches, but my need. And he comes to visit people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities, not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. The mission of Jesus was to live a perfect life and to die in our place on the cross and to be raised from the dead. To redeem us and to reconcile us to God. And as the preacher said in Acts chapter 4. and verse 12 as recorded by Luke also. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's only the name of Jesus. The second truth is this the announcement of Jesus reveals his identity. It reveals his identity. Now, everybody loves a good gift. We're entering into the gift-giving season, and uh, we all appreciate it when someone that cares about us uh, goes to the trouble to get us a gift, prepares that gift, wraps it up real nice, maybe got a nice little pretty bow on top, or it's got a ribbon wrapped around it, and I May mean, they give you the gift or the gifts under the Christmas tree and the anticipations building. I wonder what's in the gift. I wonder what it's going to be. I wonder what they got me. And it's it's a time of excitement, it's a time of anticipation. But what I want you to see here is what Gabriel did in announcing this gift. It's as though he had already unwrapped the gift, and now he's unveiling it. He's saying the gift is Jesus. His name will be called Jesus because he's the Savior. And now let me tell you a little bit more about him. Let's learn a little bit more about his identity. And the gift is unwrapped in full view in the description of what we find here, beginning in verse 32. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Jesus is the Son of God, and He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. Did you know that Mary likely would not have missed out on the significance of that terminology? Because to be spoken of as the Son of the Highest, the Son of the Most High, was speaking to the deity of Jesus, His equality with God. God is one in essence and three in person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal. And this is Jesus who came as God in the flesh. The Son of the Most High was a phrase in Semitic thought that meant a, a son who was a carbon copy of his father. One who possessed the exact qualities of his father. And God had told the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before the coming of Jesus, Isaiah 7 and verse 14, the virgin will conceive and will bear a son. His greatness would be combined with his humility and in the sacrifice of himself on behalf of sinners. He's the son of God who is God in the flesh, but note as well that Jesus is the king and he's the king of Israel. How do we know that? Because the Bible indicates that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He was the Messiah prophesied to David, who would have the rightful authority to rule over Israel. And God had made the promise to David that he would have someone ruling and reigning on the throne forever. Solomon would be the one who would immediately succeed him. But it would be Jesus who would be the eternal king. Listen to the promise in Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. We sang just a little while ago about God in part being the promise keeper. What a great designation and terminology of who God is. He's He's the promise keeper. And Gabriel's announcement is that God is the promise keeper. Not only had God told Isaiah some 700 years before about the coming of Jesus, but you can go back even further than that, generations beyond that, and God had given this promise to David. And the long-awaited Messiah would be the one who was promised. So we can say in that sense that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He says specifically he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now don't miss this. There was a past fulfillment in that when Jesus came and did what Gabriel said he was coming to do. But there is an even still yet to come aspect of this. Here's what I mean by that. The eternal fulfillment of this part of the promise in Jesus as fulfillment of prophecy has not yet taken place because the reign of Jesus will be fully manifested eternally in the millennial kingdom and then the eternal state. So the promise that God was given through Gabriel to mary and then to us by his inspired word was talking about what had been prophesied about all the way back to the time of david it had been affirmed again in the time of isaiah but he's pointing us forward to something that even further in the future that we still anticipate on this side of the cross and that brings me to the third truth the announcement of jesus reveals his glory it reveals his glory. Verse 33, his kingdom will have no end. That's permanent forever. We talk a lot about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom, advancing the kingdom, doing the work of the kingdom, the mission of the kingdom, But what is the kingdom? Let me give you a simple definition. The kingdom of God is the overarching rule and reign of God over all things. It is the sovereign will of God being carried out according to his purposes. The kingdom is the overarching rule and reign of God over all things. Now, for the ancient Jews, the idea of the kingdom of God was an accepted reality. It was taught again and again by the prophets. They saw God as the creator and the ruler over the cosmos and over the nations and over them as his chosen people. Listen to how the psalmist put it in Psalm 24, beginning in verse 8. Who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? verse 9 lift up your heads o you gates lift up your everlasting doors and the kingdom of glory shall come in who is this king of glory the lord of hosts he is the king of glory and the kingdom of jesus specifically was inaugurated at his first kingdom at his first coming so we can say in a sense the kingdom has already begun it's already begun because it was manifested in their presence. Now, we'll read a little bit later on in our study in Luke about something that took place at the very outset of the public ministry of Jesus. The Bible says in Luke chapter 4 that he went to Nazareth, back to where he had come from, and he went to worship in the synagogue, as was his custom, and it came time for something to be read And Jesus stood to read it. Now, this is no small occurrence. Because here was a Jew from the line of David, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, manifesting the kingdom. And he would step forward in the synagogue and read a passage of Scripture. But the Scripture indicates something very interesting. Listen to this. Isaiah 61 is what he read. But here's what Luke said. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Listen to this. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So in that moment, he was not handed and told what to read. He read what was a confirmation and a proclamation of who he was. And here's what he read. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The announcement of Jesus was a revelation of and an anticipation of his glory being made known, of his kingdom being manifested. Jesus would declare himself to be the anointed king for whom they were waiting. And by his life, he would demonstrate that the kingdom was among them. Did you know that when they said, Jesus is Lord in the days of the New Testament, it was the same as saying, The King has come, He's arrived. The long awaited promise of God has come true. God has manifested Himself to us in the flesh, He is the Messiah. And it would be by specifically His death on the cross that He would offer Himself as the suffering servant for our sins. And it would be by His resurrection from the dead that God would verify that Jesus is in fact the King of the kingdom. And Jesus with those early disciples, He began to build His kingdom and He continues to do so even now. And He will continue to do so right up to the end of time. And then we'll experience His kingdom forever and ever. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 24 and 25 says, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So there is a kingdom of the future, which is the complete fulfillment of the kingdom of Jesus. And it is absolutely crystal clear that Jesus will return to the earth. Only God, the father knows when, but when Jesus returns, he will return as the victor and the judge, and he will usher in a time of unprecedented peace and security. And that will go throughout all of eternity. And we'll be in the presence of the one whose glory has been revealed to us. Psalm 72 says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and he will break in pieces the oppressor. This is none other than King Jesus. What an amazing hope that we have. Then the words from Revelation 11, and verse 15 and following, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, And the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. This is the glory of the king. And this in part is what Gabriel was telling young Mary. But I ask you this question as I come toward the close of this message today. What is the only right response when we realize what Jesus came to do, who he is, and we encounter his glory? What's the only right response? Well, Mary asks, how can all of this be? And the angel references Elizabeth and says, nothing's impossible with God. But please note Mary's response in verse 38. Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be according to me, according to your word. Here's what she was saying. Lord, I am your servant and I surrender to whatever your will will be for my life so the only right response is a response of worship that's the response when we encounter the truth of what he came to do and who he is and of his eternal glory and the fact that he's the king of kings and the lord of lords the only right response is worship that's it in an attitude that would say to the lord lord whatever you want to do with my life, I'm here and I yield to you. The Bible says that Mary hurried to the hill country of Judah to Zacharias and Elizabeth's house. When Elizabeth heard her greeting, the baby John in the womb leapt inside of her and Elizabeth herself was filled with the Holy Spirit and she proclaimed her to be the most blessed of women and that the house that she had come to was also blessed blessed my challenge for you today is two-part if all these things that i've said are true and god has now through his word and by the power of his spirit unwrapped the gift of jesus out in the open for you to see who he is The challenge to you is to repent and believe, to receive the gift. You say, preacher, I know today that if I were to die and step out of this world into eternity, I would not go to be with God because I've not been saved. I've not trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Today could be the day that that changes. Right now, in this moment, in this service, in just a few moments, I'm going to give you the opportunity to express the desire of your heart to God and say, God, I need you. I'm coming to follow Jesus by faith. Will you trust him? Who in their right mind, who was offered the greatest gift that's ever been given, would say, no, I don't want the gift. Keep it. Not for me. Keep it. And the God who is sustaining you in this moment Every part of your life, he is holding you up so that you are here. He is saying to you, I've got the greatest gift of all in my son. Come to him. Today's the day of salvation for you. If you only believe. But the second part of my conclusion and challenge is this. If we believe as followers of Jesus that all of these things are true, and I'm certain, I'm confident that we do, if we believe this, then would it not follow that we would want to share the greatest gift that's ever been given to as many people as possible? Would it not follow that we would want to give? A verbal testimony, a verbal witness of the fullness of the gospel, so that people can see their need and understand what God has done through His Son Jesus and come to salvation. Would it not make sense that would be how we, what we would want to live our lives? But how broken are we about the lost? How burdened are we about the people around us who don't know Jesus the Son? When was the last time that you prayed for somebody that your heart was heavy over because they were lost? When was the last time that you took a spiritual opportunity to give a witness about Jesus and tell them about the gift of eternal life? If we believe these things, then it must be that we also live them. And that we're faithful to share the grace of God with others. So here's what I'm asking God for and what I'm challenging us toward over the next year. 2019 is all but done. It's going to be over with just like that. 2020 is before us. And I'm burdened to ask the Lord for people to be saved and baptized through the local ministry of this church. And what we're going to pray for specifically. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. We're going to pray specifically that between now and the end of this year that is to come, that we will see at least 50 people come to faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized in believers' baptism as a public profession of their faith, not for the sake of the number, but for the sake of the glory of God. And would it be that we would come broken before the throne of God, that we could not just go about this life business as usual, that we could not just come and be comfortable here and receive our feeding and and be happy about the blessings that we've gotten, but that we would be so burdened that day by day we would come before the throne of God by the blood of Jesus, and we would pray and ask God to save lost people. Friends, that's why we exist. For the glory of God, that people would know God somebody cared enough about us to share with us. I'm inviting you to pray with me toward that end. And let's see what the Lord wants to do. He's able to do exceedingly above and beyond what we could ask or think. Could it be that our lives in this church could be a spark of revival? And we could see God move in a powerful way. If you will, bow your heads with me for just a moment. We're going to sing a song of conclusion and response here in just a moment. But right now, I'm asking you the question, are you following Jesus? Have you been saved? If not, He stands ready to receive you. You Say, well, Pastor, how can I take that step of faith? Listen, it's not a... It's not a prayer that saves you. It's God that saves you. You wouldn't even know you were lost if it were for the Holy Spirit. But you can express the desire of your heart and the convicting power of His Spirit to say and pray to God, God, I know that you are the creator of all and you are holy. And I am not. I'm a sinner and my sin separates me from you. But I believe that you sent your son Jesus to live and to die and to now live again. And he died for my sins and he rose from the dead. And in this moment, I am turning from my sins and I am turning to the Savior. And God, I accept the gift of eternal life. I accept the gifts of salvation through your son. So continue to pray in just a moment. You're gonna have opportunity to come up here in the front as the service concludes and even after. Listen, you're not meant to live your Christian life alone. And we want to help you. We want to disciple you. We want to help you follow Jesus. But we need to know if you've taken that step of faith today, would you come? And then church, when was the last time you thought about what it would be like if there was just a a powerful move of God's spirit in this place? If there was an outpouring of God's spirit where people were under conviction and people were coming to faith in Christ and people were faithfully sharing with others and telling them about the good news could that be so in our midst it can only be if we say Lord here we are your servants whatever you want in our lives make it be we worship you so God we ask you for this I pray that it's not presumptively I know it's your heart that lost people be saved and that saved people share with the lost. So God, I'm praying that we would keep this in front of us even in the coming weeks and that we would do something about it as we share and as we're faithful to make known the glory of the King of the kingdom in whose name we pray, the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. Amen.